There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. doing my research for this episode there was a word that kept coming up that even I with my limited knowledge of American political history recognized and I'm sure many of you will too and that word is McCarthyism I won't talk about it too much because you only need a quick definition to see how completely it fits the bill with the episode that we're going to be talking about tonight so I'll quote directly from Wikipedia here It says, McCarthyism is the practice of making accusations of disloyalty, subversion, or treason without proper regard for evidence. The term has its origins in the period in the United States known as the Second Red Scare, lasting roughly from the late 1940s to the late 1950s and characterized by heightened fears of communist influence on American institutions and espionage by Soviet agents. Originally coined to criticize the anti-communist pursuits of Republican US Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, McCarthyism soon took on a broader meaning, describing the excesses of similar efforts. The term is also now used more generally to describe reckless, unsubstantiated accusations, as well as demagogic attacks on the character or patriotism of political adversaries. So with the episode that we're going to be talking about tonight in mind, you can see how that really fits the bill. So let's take a look at Rod Serling's take on it with the monsters adieu on Maple Street. Maple Street, USA, late summer. A tree-lined little world of front porch gliders, barbecues, the laughter of children, and the bell of an ice cream vendor. At the sound of the roar and the flash of light, it will be precisely 6.43 p.m. This is Maple Street on a late Saturday afternoon. Maple Street, in the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came. First broadcast on the 4th of March 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Ron Winston. Now Winston would also direct another season 1 episode, The Big Tall Wish, and he'd also return in season 4 to direct the episode Stop Over in a Quiet Town. Not a massively prolific director it seems, but he did spend some time on a few well-known TV shows. Now Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion mentions a misquote that appeared in 
the American press before the episode was aired, and it quotes Sailing as saying that the monsters are due on Maple Street was his commentary on the fact that the minorities always need a scapegoat to explain their own weaknesses. And Zikri goes on to comment that Sailing's point had been borne out even before the show had aired. Prejudice can't be confined just to the Twilight Zone. The author of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr., traces the origins of the monsters of Jew on Maple Street back to a radio play that Rod Serling wrote in 1951. I don't know whether this was just a script that he wrote or whether it actually got made, if anyone out there knows or has a copy of it, then do let me know. In this play, entitled The Button Pushers, it was set in the future Earth of 1970. Two rival nations had created doomsday weapons, and each of the nations was able to set off these devices by the touch of a single button, hence the title. At the end of the play, there's a conversation between two aliens by the name of Virus and Philovius. And it's quite a casual little conversation between the two of them. And they're talking about a, a bet that they had. And Philovius says to Virus, I bet the Keeper of the North Star that the Little Earth would destroy itself before the next billion years had gone by. And she has. She seems to have just blown herself up, disintegrated. She no longer exists. Pity, she was a lovely little planet. I wonder what caused it. And then he goes on to say, Oh, what am I thinking of? I know what destroyed it. It had human beings on it. I'd forgotten. And then the other alien replies, Well then, that explains it. Those pesky little things can't live side by side very long. Shall we go back and tell the others? To which she answers, Why take the trouble? As if anyone cared about tiny earth. So unimportant, a speck. So insignificant, a dot in the universe. Who cares? Now we've touched upon this many times before where we talk about how sailing, about how sailing was had in social commentary in plain sight. And he speaks about Maple Street in this way. He says, the in the Twilight Zone, I have, with varying degrees of success or failure, attempted to touch upon moral themes utilizing the device of the parable. In other words, I've tried to insert subtly what I hope to be a message, but couched it in such a manner that it becomes almost an unconscious effect. Hence, I will tell a story about an invasion from outer space, but tell it with an implicit suggestion that human beings are prone to inordinate suspicions and prejudices about things that are different. So here we are in Maple Street, and I guess you could call it the idealized American neighborhood of the 50s. You know, you've got all the Americana there, ice cream trucks, kids playing around, dad's mowing the lawn, mum's in the kitchen, beautiful big homes with well-kept gardens. People have time in Maple Street, time to fix things, to tinker around the house, to spend time with each other. And I often think that we have made such advances in the world in terms of technology and so on. Advances that should be buying us more time like this, but it hasn't really turned out that way. So even now that idyllic little street seems a very attractive prospect. Now I recall reading an interview with Rod Sailing's widow Carol, where she said that Rod Sailing longed for the simple life. And we've already seen an example of that, how 
how dear sailing holds this ideal of the small idyllic community in the episode walking distance and we'll see it several more times before we're through with the twilight zone so he does use this quite a lot the theme of going back to a simpler time or finding a peaceful place in the world but it's funny that he might have longed for the simple life but he kept himself extremely busy when he wasn't writing he was teaching or doing promotion and it seems to be the case that although he longed for the simple life, his own personal drive wouldn't really let him have it. So you couldn't really ask for a nicer place than Maple Street to live, but it doesn't really take much to crack that peaceful veneer. Doesn't make sense. Why should the power go off all of a sudden and the phone line? Maybe some kind of an electrical storm or something. Now that don't seem likely. This guy's just as blue as anything. Not a cloud, no lightning, no thunder, no nothing. How could it be a storm? Can't get a thing on the radio, not even on the portable. Why don't we go downtown and check with the police? Well, they'll probably think we're crazy or something. A little power failure and everybody gets flustered and everything. Well, it isn't just a power failure, Charlie. If it were, we'd still be able to get a broadcast on the portable. I'll take a run downtown. Maybe I can get it straightened out. So we're set up now, the power's gone off, everyone's asking questions, wondering what's going on. And it's here that Sailing has to do something to ignite the situation, to move things on, from people just standing around wondering what's happened. Mr. Brand, you better not. Why not? They don't want you to. Who doesn't want us to? Them. Them? Who are them? Whoever was in that thing that came by overhead. What? Whoever was in the thing that came over. I don't think they want us to leave here. Now I recall when I first saw this episode many years ago, kind of cringing slightly at Tommy's little speech there. You know what right-thinking person is going to have their actions influenced in any way by a kid saying that? And in the episode they do dismiss what he has to say as nonsense initially. But what it does do is perhaps plant a seed in their heads, even if they don't say it yet. It plants a seed of responsibility. You know, to me it seems that now, on a subconscious level at least, there is the idea that it, it could be caused by someone, rather than just being a freak occurrence. Nobody says it, they talk about meteors causing it, you know, but there's still the good people of Maple Street. But the seed's been planted now. And a few more words from Tommy seem to make them stop and think even longer. Mr. Brand, please don't leave here. You might not even be able to get to town. It was that way in the story. Nobody could leave. Nobody except... Except who? Except the people they'd sent down ahead of them. They looked just like humans, and it wasn't until the ship landed that... Tommy, please, son. Honey, don't talk like that. So do we buy it? Do we buy into this whole alien invasion thing that Tommy's talking about. I think if you put yourself in their shoes, then probably not. If you were stood on Maple Street, you would pretty much instantly dismiss it as, you know, just a kid talking rubbish. But again, we have to look at it like they... I don't think they necessarily believe aliens are responsible. It's just that someone could be responsible. <laughs> started somehow. He got his car started.
car just up and started like that? All by itself. He wasn't anywhere near it. It just started all by itself. He never did come out to look at that thing that flew overhead. He wasn't even interested. He always was an oddball. Him and his whole family. Real oddball. How did he get his car started? That's how quickly one of their own becomes another, and the scene I think is very nicely shot. After the people have said their piece, the camera pans down to their feet, and the speed at which they turn from individuals into this collective force is quite, you know, startling and frightening. And Steve, one of the stronger characters in the group, calms things down a little. He seems to be the voice of reason, but then he says this to Les. What's this all about, Steve? We're on a monster kick, Les. Seems the general impression now holds that maybe there's a family that isn't what we think they are. Monsters from outer space are something different than us. Fifth columnists from the vast beyond. Now, do you know anybody that might fit that description around here on Maple Street? I think the key here is someone different from us. I don't think Steve at this point really believes the monsters from outer space thing either. He's got a kind of grin on his face. He says it as if he knows how ridiculous it is. But although he is one of the more open-minded of the group, he's still, to a degree, getting carried along with it. Now there is a novelization of Maple Street, which I'll talk more about later, but the novelization bears this out. It talks about how Steve says this with sarcasm in his voice. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it's aliens. Not at all. And I don't really think anyone does. But again, the seeds are planted that someone is responsible. You scared, frightened rabbits, you. You're sick people, do you know that? You're sick people, all of you. And you don't even know what you're starting here, because let me tell you. Let me tell you. You're starting something here that... That's what you should be frightened of. As God is my witness, you're letting something begin here that's... That's a nightmare. So Les's little speech is enough to make the mob back off for now, but it's, it's an uneasy truce. Like I say, Steve seems to be the most level-headed of the group, and he makes an effort to patch things up with Les, but then one of the other ugly pieces of the puzzle comes into play. I look at the stars. That's exactly what he does. Why, this whole thing is some kind of madness. That's exactly what it is, Mrs. Goodman. Some kind of madness. You best watch who you see with, Steve. Till we get this all straightened out, you ain't exactly above suspicion yourself. Being guilty by association. Suspicion falling on you because you speak to someone under suspicion or speak to someone who is perceived to be different. You know, it's it's a very ugly thing, a person becoming a, a victim of prejudice because they themselves are not prejudiced. You know, it's a, it's a cowardly way of shutting down any and all opposition, putting everyone in the same box. You may not be like them, but you associate with them, so you're just as bad as them, and you're certainly not like me. Your wife's been doing a little talking, Steve, about some of the odd things you've been doing. Yeah? Well, go ahead, Don. Tell us what she said. Go ahead, what's my wife said? Let's get it all out. Let's pick out every idiosyncrasy of every man, woman, and child on this whole street. And then we might as well set up some kind of a kangaroo court. Now, how about a firing squad at dawn, Charlie, to get rid of all the suspects, narrow them down for you, make it easier? So we're right in the thick of it now, and I imagine this must have been quite a difficult episode to film. 
it's got a big cast, mainly in one location. But that brings with it several perspectives that need to be covered. One of the touches that I do like is how when things are heating up, let's say you have Charlie shouting some accusation at Steve from a distance. And between them, you will have bystanders, other people. And as these other people listen to Charlie talking, they kind of take on all of his prejudices, all of his anger, as they then turn to Steve. And this runs through all of the episodes, the mob mentality, the building up of fear and suspicion. Now some Twilight Zone commentators talk about how this was shot on the same street as a series of films starring Mickey Rooney as a character called Andy Hardy. Now I'm personally not familiar with these films, but I think American listeners will have more of an idea about these. From what I can gather, they seem to be a wholesome and sentimental series of films, which perhaps make it all the more powerful when the image of the perfect American street is shattered like this. And you're with them too, all of you. You're all standing out here, all set to crucify somebody. You're all set to find a scapegoat. You're all desperate to point some kind of a finger at a neighbor. Well, believe me, friends, the only thing that's going to happen is that we're going to eat each other up alive. It's a powerful speech, and it does seem to have some impact. It seems to bring people to their senses momentarily until Pete Van Horn wanders onto the street and Charlie shoots him. Then, to confuse things even more, the lights come on in Charlie's house. Charlie, the lights just went on in your house. Why did the lights go on in your house? What about it, Charlie? How come you're the only one with lights now? That's what I'd like to know. You're so quick to kill Charlie, and so quick to tell us who we had to look out for. Well, maybe you had to kill. Maybe Pete there was trying to tell us something. Maybe Pete learned something and came back to tell us who it was amongst us we had to look out for. No! No, it's nothing of the sort! I didn't know the lights on, I swear I didn't! Somebody's pulling a gag or something! A gag? A gag! Charlie, there's a man lying dead in the street and you killed him. Does that look like a gag to you? See again how that emphasis of the word your comes back again. Now things are shifting back to Charlie and, you know, sadly you would think Les, who was subject to the persecution of the mob earlier, would have learned from that, but now he's happy that the focus is off him and he turns on Charlie too. And of course, then we get the reveal of who's really behind the chaos on Maple Street. Understand the procedure now. Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers. Throw them into darkness for a few hours and then sit back and watch the pattern. And this pattern is always the same? With few variations. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find. And it's themselves. All we need to do is sit back and watch. Then I take it this place, this Maple Street, is not unique. By no means. Their world is full of Maple Streets. And we'll go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. One to the other. One to the other. One to the other. Now the aliens in that scene were dressed in clothes from the film Forbidden Planet and the footage of the ship flying away at the end is actually from the film too, it's just reversed and turned upside down. 
Now we have seen footage and props from Forbidden Planet being used a lot and it's something that Sailing did get criticism for in 1960. L. Kemp of the Chicago Science Fiction League wrote to Sailing and he was full of praise for the episode, but he did say that he had his complaints too. He said, you have always dealt completely honestly with the field of science fiction and fantasy, adding to the prestige of the genre rather than detracting from it. Of course, I do have complaints too. I'm pretty damn tired of seeing MGM's overworked Forbidden Planet Saucer and the same Astronomicals. I'm extremely tired of the old odd angle and screwball shots that add not one single thing to the photography, but a desire that it should cease. And Sailing replied with uh, a defense of the episode. He said, while I don't think the camera on it was exceptionally good, I cannot defend the MGM saucer. Unfortunately, with budget problems, you have to fall back on standard overworked devices too often. So quite instantly, this episode became, I think, one of the most talked about episodes and the most popular episodes. People latched onto its meaning immediately. The Waterloo Daily Courier called it an excellent production and the studio were inundated with people requesting prints of the prints of the episode so that they could show them for various things like a, a school a teacher by the name of John Bauer a professor at City College of New York wrote to Sailing and he said one of the outstanding frustrations in my attempt to further the education of my students is the solidly encased it can't happen here attitude which prevails among today's college youth. Your play might help to break through the unrealistic complacency which marks their thoughts regarding the most psychosocial disruptive forces. But so popular was the episode and so many requests that they had in the end, CBS refused to actually send out any prints of the episode anymore because it was just so in demand. You know, I'll be honest, I do find it difficult to come up with observations about the real landmark episodes like this it feels like everything's already been said probably by more intelligent people than me but what is left to say about the monsters of you on maple street it is still as relevant now as it was then times change but people just find different monsters i guess a good indication of this is the remake from the most recent twilight zone revival in the early 2000s that episode was called The Monsters Are On Maple Street and there are several differences. It's not so much of an idyllic community in the first place, you know, the, the suspicious attitudes seem to be there already. The power outage just ignites things, you know. I guess we don't really believe in that idyllic American street anymore. But in this version, it's not space aliens that they talk about but terrorists. So in that sense, I suppose it is a bit more current, but is it any good? You know, that 2000 series is much maligned, and I think I haven't watched all of those episodes myself. I've watched a few of them, and some of them I've thought to be okay. This one, I guess when you take on one of the giants of the Twilight Zone, you're really setting yourself up for a fall. I, I don't think it's a terrible piece of television. I think there's a lot worse, it kind of hangs together by itself, it's watchable, but I, I just don't really think it can escape the shadow of the superior original, and I'm not someone who necessarily minds remakes, in fact I, I enjoy seeing different takes on, on the same idea, but for me, 
it doesn't quite work, you know, it doesn't quite work. So back to the original, you know, it is a bleak ending, perhaps one of the bleakest for the Twilight Zone. There's, there's no glimmer of hope in the end. And if there were, then I think it would have been a mistake to do so. It would give the audience an out. It's, it's not really a time for saying everything's going to be okay in the end. It's, it's a time to look at the damage that these kind of attitudes cause. And Sailing really hammers that home in what I think is one of his least cryptic and most powerful closing narrations of all the series. You know, prejudice kills, he says, and while I would hope that we have moved on since the time of Maple Street, I think we all know that there's still a long way to go before we've conquered it. There is a novelization, like I mentioned, and it's written by Sailing himself. It's part of a book called From the Twilight Zone, and that was published in 1960, I believe, and it may have been reprinted down the line or put into other anthologies, I'm not too sure, but that book by itself, it is a nice little item, and you can still find copies of it quite reasonably on Amazon or eBay. As adaptations go, it's pretty much word for word the same as the script of the television episode. But there is one paragraph added to it that I'll read for you just now. So, spoiler warning if you want to check that out for yourself. But, to be honest, all it really does is details the aftermath of the incident at Maple Street. And it does add one final ironic twist. And it goes like this. When the sun came up on the following morning, Maple Street was silent. Most of the houses had been burned. There were a few bodies lying on sidewalks and draped over porch railings, but the silence was total. There was simply no more life. At four o'clock that afternoon, there was no more world, or at least not the kind of world that had greeted the morning. And by Wednesday afternoon of the following week, a new set of residents had moved into Maple Street. They were a handsome race of people. Their faces showed great character. Great character indeed. Great character and excellently shaped heads. Two to each new resident. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, Prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own, for the children, and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is, that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. So let's hear what some of the listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast think of the monsters of you on Maple Street and submitted for your approval. Good friend of the show, Luke, sends this in. He says... The Monsters of Dew on Maple Street is simply a masterclass in storytelling and filmmaking, from the opening narration right through to the closing moments. Each individual character is well written, beautifully played and wonderfully directed. The tension 
and build of the episode is outstanding and it really gives you an uneasy feeling as each one of the Maple Street residents descends into madness. Sailing's excellent vision of giving quite thought-provoking political views under a science fiction illusion is a true testament to the genius of his work. As several members of the Twilight Zone forum have mentioned, this sort of story may not have flown with studio execs or advertisers had they not disguised it so well, so my hat goes off to him, and I have to agree. Luke goes on to say, I have mentioned a few times on the forums about my wishes and desires to have seen Steven Spielberg's take on this story, had the unfortunate incident involving Vic Morrow and the extras on the Twilight Zone movie not taken place. Whether or not he could have topped the original is neither here nor there, but the story and the material is so good that it would have been wonderful to have seen a master filmmaker like Spielberg try his hand at it. For me, The Monsters of You on Maple Street is one of the highlights of not only season one, but the Twilight Zone as a whole. I have to agree with you on that one, Luke. Thanks for your insights there, good stuff. I've also got an email from a gentleman or lady who rather cryptically calls themselves S. And they say, hey Tom, I'm 17, I live in Ontario, Canada, and there's a TV station in my region that airs the Twilight Zone at obscure hours of the night and I'm hooked. What surprises me is how relevant most episodes still are and the ability of some tales to frighten me more than any gore-fest horror movie I've enjoyed. The podcast is very nicely produced and I appreciate the contributions from guests reading stories the episodes are based on. The show might be rather formulaic without them. It's odd that you seem to be a bit sailing-y, a cool voice and a friendly business-like manner make you an effective host. Well, thanks. The Monsters of You on Maple Street is an episode that I like for its depiction of paranoia born from ignorance. But I wonder if it could have been a good hour-long episode. The speed at which characters turn against each other highlights their fear and indecisiveness, but to me it almost seemed too quick. Maybe even more distrust could have been conveyed with a slower pace and the neighbours being left without the power longer before they devolved into chaos. My favourite aspect of this episode is the willingness of the adults to latch on to Little Tommy's theory. He got the idea from a comic book. People do strange things when they're confused. On a side note, I'd like to wish you well more personally. I've just returned from a trip to the UK. Yours and other podcasts were great for the train rides. I'm sort of disturbed by the riots and I hope you and your loved ones can stay safe and aren't in the centre of the madness. Although the rioters obviously wouldn't care, I'd rather not see Britain destroyed. Here's hoping the police can prevent this from happening again. Best wishes, S. Well, you and me both, you and me both. Thanks, S. Some great insights there. I have another email from a gentleman called Mark, and he says, Hi, Tom. I just wanted to drop you a line to let you know I'm enjoying the podcast tremendously. I came up on the podcast as I was starting to watch the entire series in order on Netflix. I enjoy watching the episode and then hearing your commentary on it soon after. I have a few thoughts on the show I wanted to share with you as well. Feel free to use them on the podcast or not as you wish. I believe my first real exposure to The Twilight Zone came not from the TV show but from a book. In the mid-80s when I was around 10 years old I picked up a dog-eared copy of a book with short stories from the show. I distinctly remember The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street a true classic, but also the fever. 
This latter tale made a big impression of me. In my mind, I pictured this one-armed bandit as a truly horrific monster. When I recently watched the show version for the first time, it was, as you said, a bit cheesy and almost comical. But it scared the dickens out of me as a kid. As always, the imagination is more horrific than any TV show could be, and that certainly was the case with The Fever. I am a teacher, and at one point taught 5th grade American history. I found The Twilight Zone to be a fantastic resource for my instruction. Instead of dry, boring videos with just the facts, I used several episodes that told a great tale in addition to teaching about the different periods we were studying. The passerby showed what life was like during the Civil War, and also brought to mind the great cost of warfare. Equality of Mercy did a nice job of representing what life was like for the soldiers in the Pacific Theatre of World War II. It also led nicely into a discussion about the use of the A-bomb. Death's Head Revisited probably made the greatest impact on my students. It handled the horror of the Holocaust in a compelling fashion, and when the tape finished, you could have heard a pin drop in my classroom, which didn't happen often. My students really enjoyed the show, and in my mind, they were undisputably educational. The kids even asked to watch other episodes for rewards here and there, and I gladly obliged. Thanks for your hard work on the podcast and website. The Twilight Zone is certainly worthy of such intense scrutiny and dedication. Mark. Thanks very much, Mark. It's, it's good to hear about different people's experiences with the Twilight Zone. Thanks very much. Now, we've got some MP3 feedback from a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine who I haven't caught up with in some time. We really should remedy that. But he hosts a podcast called The Inside Outcast, which you can find over at Geek Planet Online. So here's Dave with his thoughts on the monsters of you on Maple Street. Hi, Tom. This is Dave from over at the Inside Outcast with some long overdue feedback. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is one of the key episodes of The Twilight Zone, especially for the first season. It achieves at what The Twilight Zone does best, social commentary through science fiction. And the parallels to the Cold War are pretty clear with neighbors suspecting one another of foul play, only instead of being a fifth columnist, they're suspected of being some kind of monster. Sadly, that kind of suspicion exists even today. Not that long ago, citizens were encouraged to report on the activities of their neighbors. But then suspicion goes back further than the Cold War to medieval times. If drought or some other problem affected most of the crops in the village... People turned their suspicion on those farmers that still had a healthy, bountiful crop. And more often than not, these people were suspected of being witches. And I think this reflects people's inability to claim responsibility for any kind of disadvantage or failure they may have. That the success of others must be through some kind of trickery. So when all the electrics go out on Maple Street, save somebody's car or somebody's house, clearly that person is responsible. And as the story progresses, the inhabitants on Maple Street fail to pick up on that it's never quite the same person that seems responsible. It's first one person's house, then another. And instead of determining that it's some electrical problem, they just 
select another target for blame. So it's quite cynical, but nevertheless seems to be a proven fact that we're not that far from anarchy. Don't remember who said it, but uh, there's this old saying that we're three meals away from total anarchy. And today it would be electrical power. Can you imagine what would happen if you hadn't the internet for several days? And I'm not just a fan of the Twilight Zone. I'm also, as you know, a big fan of the band Skinny Puppy, who are also big fans of the Twilight Zone. And they've implemented sound clips into their music. Oddly enough, selected the same clips that you have throughout your commentary. And the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is no exception. On a very old track, one of their first experimental tracks before the lead singer Ogre really came to the forefront, Monster Radio Man is an instrumental with clips from the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street strewn throughout. This includes several moments during the panic. well as some closing lines from the alien invaders. I missed sending feedback for Elegy, another one of my favorites, and one that seemed to have influenced Skinny Puppy a great deal as well. And if your listeners recall, Elegy is the story of three astronauts that land on an asteroid that appears very much like Earth some 200 years ago, only everyone seems to be frozen in time. They later discover that it is a mortuary of sorts, and as the caretaker feels that there can be no eternal peace as long as man lives there, He deigns to poison them and place them in a position where he felt they would find themselves the happiest, which would be returning home. Skinny Puppy also used clips from this striking episode in 200 years. their single chainsaw. So with that, I apologize for hijacking time from your show. I just felt this was a good opportunity to pipe in and show how The Twilight Zone has great influence not only over writers and the filmmakers of today, but musicians as well. So I've been absolutely loving the podcast. I am... Very excited that it has grown in such popularity, and I wish you continued success. Bye. So my thanks to you, Dave. No worries, you didn't. Uh, you didn't take over the podcast. It's it's always great to get all the voices on, and I thank you for that. So if anyone else wants to send feedback like Dave did, or email feedback like the other contributors, then that's great. And you can email me at tom at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. As is customary, I do like to thank everyone who leaves an iTunes review and 
I do have a bit of a backlog considering I've been away so long, so I'm just going to reel off some names from both sides of the Atlantic and just want to send you my thanks. We have Loch Navarre 65, The Mahoney, James Lane, Fairballs, Fast Shoes, Stephen the Twilight Zone fan, Willow Cats, Moron 22, Omama 75, Paul Levero, Albert Berge and LJ Romanoff. I uh, thank you all and you know some of you left those messages while I was on my unplanned hiatus there so I thank you for keeping the faith and you know everybody who has everybody's everybody who has stayed subscribed and like I say everyone who's mentioned it on Twitter you know thanks very much I appreciate you sticking with it and I'm gonna stick with it now I won't say I'll be rigidly every week I'm still in quite a transitional phase but we will be more regular and we will get even more regular as time goes on so Thanks for sticking with me, I, I appreciate it. I would also like to thank Chris over at the Night Gallery podcast. If it wasn't for him, there would be no new content on the site. You know, he's been keeping things ticking over, keeping things going. So now I've got a bit more time on my hands, I will hopefully be contributing more as well. But he's been doing a great job. The podcast recently had its 50th episode, so he's well ahead of me. But um, great podcast. And, you know, we also had the great news recently that... Night Gallery Season 3 is going to be released in the US soon, so it's going to be even easier to, to watch along with Chris, so that's, that's great news for everyone. Okay, well that's all from me. Next time we'll be discussing a world of difference, so I'll see you then. Bye-bye.